everyone, and welcome to the Friday, April 7th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, public assistance gets a public hearing, a sweeping education bill takes another key legislative step, and hey, how's your property taxman assessment look? Hey everyone, I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette. You know what, I'm going to say that again. Property taxman assessment? I fumbled that. <laughs> Let's do that one more time. <laughs> Three... Two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, April 7, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, public assistance gets a public hearing, a sweeping education bill takes another key legislative step, and hey, how's your property tax assessment look? Hello, everyone, I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Aaron. Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough is here. Hello, Caleb. Hello, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Aaron. And Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Greetings, Jared. Aaron, I am the college women's national basketball championship refereeing of Iowa politics podcasters. <laughs> oh, man. No, you're, don't, don't sell yourself short. You're, you're, you're a tremendous slouch. <laughs> and, fi- <laughs> and finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. So, Jared, right. are you going to the White House? Yes, actually, I, I that is the uh, the piece they brokered. I, I will now be going instead of any <laughs> players for either team. Just me. And uh, everybody, uh, everybody, uh, gather your thoughts and hold your water on that. I have a little surprise for y'all at the end of the podcast, so so stay tuned. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Uh, first up this week, it was a pretty slow week overall at the Iowa Capitol uh, in the legislative session. Uh, overall, I say, because Tuesday was sort of a full week unto itself, uh, so I guess things kind of evened out. Um, <clears throat> uh, pardon me, on that Tuesday, Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law her state government reorganization bill. She also spoke to reporters about that and, and some other topics. And those are a couple of big headlines right there. Uh, but we're not even going to spend much time on that because some other really big things happened uh, also Tuesday. First, there was a public hearing on legislation that would alter eligibility requirements for low-income Iowans to qualify for food and health care assistance, um, thinking Medicare and, and SNAP. Uh, and then just to make sure their voices were heard clearly, opponents of that legislation also held a news conference to, to air their grievances with the bill. Uh, Tom, you covered the public hearing and the news conference. Uh, what were some of the highlights? What, what, what are some of the things you heard that stood out most during uh, that uh, the, the public hearing and that news conference? Yeah. Uh, so just to correct one thing, because and, and I've been guilty of this um, Medicaid and not Medicare. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Um, but um, I think uh, the one thing um, that stood out to me about that public hearing that I thought was pretty interesting um, because one of the organizations that's registered against the bill is um, the Iowa Catholic Conference. Um, but you had a couple of um, pastors um, get up and speak in support of the legislation, um, in particular, uh, a pastor from uh, First Baptist Church in Perry, who uh, argued that the bill would, quote, reignite a culture of personal accountability, uh, end quote, and force people to become more self-sufficient, improving society. Um, he said that holding others accountable creates checks and balances for restraining assistance from those who are milking the system and adding nothing to it, while 
uh, rewarding those working to build it, talking about holding others accountable um, produces equitability. But it's it's you know worth noting, and, and opponents brought this up um, during uh, their testimony as well that there's little fraud in Iowa's SNAP uh, food assistance and, and Medicaid programs. Um, for SNAP benefits, Iowa disqualified um, 195 out of um, more than uh, or, or nearly 280,000 um, recipients for fraud during the um, 2022 fiscal year. Um, and then Iowa's Medicaid Fraud Control Unit reported 235 open fraud cases, according to its latest fiscal year report. Of those, um, 187 were uh, multi-state civil cases and 48 were in-state civil fraud cases. Um, now, that's 235 open fraud cases out of more than uh, 886,000 people um, who are enrolled in Iowa's Medicaid program. Um so I, I just I, I thought it was it was interesting um, that you had um, a couple of uh, religious leaders um, arguing that, um, you know, we need to be teaching personal accountability and that uh, this bill would do that. Um, you also had um, some some Iowa residents and a couple of small business owners um, talking about well, the small business owners in, in particularly. Um, talking about there's a workforce shortage uh, in Iowa and feeling that one of the reasons is that people would rather stay on public assistance um, than work. Um, um, but, but then um, you had, you know, uh, a, a, a single mother who relies on uh, uh, SNAP benefits, food assistance. You had ions with, with disabilities. Um, you had a parent uh, who cares for uh, children with autism um, pleading with lawmakers not to vote for a bill that they said um, you know, would lead to children in vulnerable Iowans uh, losing access to health care or food assistance. They talked about um, the struggles that their uh, families had um, making ends meet and just how important these assistance programs um, were for them um, to, uh, you know, to put food on the table, to, to access health care and how, um, you know, over time it eventually helped them to become um, self-sufficient um, in that, you know, uh, you know, they, they weren't, um, you know, relying on this on this public assistance um, in, in, in perpetuity. You know, they, they, they eventually got to a point where, again, they were able to be to be um, self-sufficient and, you know, no longer had to rely on the public assistance. But just how important that public assistance was for them and their families to um, to, 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 to survive and, and meet their basic needs and, you know, not have to worry about, um, you know, whether they're going to pay their utility bill this month or um, put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, that um, is eligible for uh, debate on the House floor, right? That'll be the next step? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. It's it's strange to still be hearing the argument that there are employment issues in the state because people are able to make more off of benefits from the state than at their jobs. Because I remember hearing that like three years ago during the early, early days 
of the pandemic. And so I, I just find it curious that that particular argument hasn't really seemed to advance much in, in three years or that, that line of rationale. Yeah. And, and that the, the changes to the unemployment system in the meantime, right. That they, they reduced the, they, the early, yeah, they're less generous. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, in, in, in sorry, another thing to, to, to point out, um, that I, that I thought was interesting is, um, you know, this was an experiment that has been tried in other states, um, notably in Pennsylvania. Um, so Pennsylvania um, did a, um, uh, I guess, a, a three-year pilot of um, enacting uh, a similar asset tests for those who receive uh, SNAP benefits. Uh, that's the Supplemental Nutrition um, assistance program, um, you know, that is commonly referred to or known as, as food stamps anyway. Um, sorry. So, so Pennsylvania kind of did this, this, this pilot program implementing, um, a similar asset test only to, uh, ditch that, um, three years later because they saw administrative costs outweigh reductions in spending. And because, um, it permitted or excuse me, presented, so many um, hurdles and barriers um, for uh, low-income residents who qualify to to apply for assistance that more than uh, 110,000 uh, Pennsylvania residents, um, you know, essentially ended up losing out on receiving benefits. Again, residents who qualify to to receive that assistance but couldn't provide the paperwork uh, or documentation required to show um, that they are eligible or who just kind of threw their hands up in the air and decided, you know, this is just too burdensome and cumbersome and it's just not worth it. Yeah. And, and to that point, Tom, and that it'll, it'll be interesting when the, to listen to the debate, the, the debate when this gets to the house floor, because, um, and I apologize if I'm wrong about this, but I, I don't believe the, the LSA analysis, the fiscal note was out on this bill when they debated it on the Senate floor. And, and, and that LSA note shows some of that impact, that potential impact that you're describing, Tom, the possible um, reduction in, in, in the number of people enrolled for, for those reasons you stated. So, so that's, you know, that's, that's now out there in in the LSA analysis that says, Hey, if these bills go through, this could very well happen that, that these people uh, who are eligible uh, will no longer uh, be enrolled in the program. So, so I'm <laughs> think it's fair to say that will probably come up during that debate. And, uh, so that's going to be interesting. And like I said, I don't think that came up during the Senate debate. I don't think the note was out yet. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the fiscal note came out after um, the Senate passed the bill, um, and it was headed to the House Appropriations Committee. Um, and that and that was brought up um, during the public hearing. Um, you know, so the um, LSA fiscal note um, estimates that about one percent of uh, Iowans that receive um, benefits through these public assistance programs um, would um, lose benefits um, due to discrepancies. You know, it estimated about um, 8,000 Iowans um, on Medicaid um, could potentially lose benefits and another 2,800 who um, receive SNAP benefits could um, potentially lose that. Um, And it talks about how there's going to be a um, upfront cost to the state um, to hire um, more than, um, 200, um, 
FTEs or, or, or to hire more staff um, to conduct these, um, you know, more frequent checks um, to make sure that people are eligible, you know, doing the, 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 in, the asset um, checks and the income verification, the identity um, um, verification, um, and having to set up a new, um, a, a new system to, 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 to do that and, you know, working with a third-party vendor to do that. So there, there's going to be an upfront cost, but then um, over time, eventually, um, you know, they estimate that the state would save more than $8 million annually, but opponents argue that that comes at the expense of um, losing out on federal funding um, for these programs, um, again, like SNAP, Medicaid, um, CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, um, that, you know, that's tens of millions of dollars um, eventually over time that um, cannot be reallocated to other programs. And so essentially, Iowa just lose out, lo- loses out on that money. So, you know, Iowans are paying um, federal taxes and, you know, a large chunk of that then um, wouldn't return to the state um, to help out families in need. Right. Yeah, it's, right. It's, it's interesting that the pastors weighed in. I mean, we've all heard the story about how Jesus fed the multitudes with loaves and fishes. The underreported part of that is that he was able to stretch the, that food by putting an asset test in place that meant a lot of the multitude wasn't really able to navigate the paperwork. So I think, I think, you know, the pastors are probably coming at it from that theological standpoint. So Jesus didn't like red tape either, huh? Well, you you know, you you can't just, you know, not all the multitude is, is entitled to this. this I guess he did like bread and, and fishes. So, yeah. Yeah. I I I was um curious uh and was checking the uh, the declarations for for this one and there were only five total uh, lobbyist declarations that were for the legislation on the Iowa legislature website uh two Americans for Prosperity uh one for the Opportunity Solutions Project and then two for uh, Iowans for Tax Relief um and then some of the against included a couple of different United Ways some food banks. Um, prevent child abuse, Iowa, and the Iowa Catholic Conference. So not all the uh, pastors, I guess, were as fond of uh, the legislation. Yeah, I believe Tom Chapman, uh, the lobbyist for the Iowa Catholic Conference, spoke uh, about that, right, Tom? Yeah, Tom's not. Yep, he did. Yep, yep. All right. Uh, obviously interesting. Like I said, that floor debate will be interesting, too. Uh, so um, we'll watch um, for that. And, Hope, and hopefully when, when the floor debate's over, there's a a free legislative reception by some special interest group where they can go and, and eat food for free. I mean, I hope that's, I hope they don't go hungry. That's all I, that's all I worry about. Wouldn't that be perfect? It'll be on a day when there's one of those giant food buffets down in the rotunda. Oh God. All right. Um, moving on also on Tuesday, uh, the Iowa house debated and passed uh, on Republican only support uh, some sweeping K-12 education policy that, among many, many things, um, includes procedures for moving uh, from schools books that are deemed to have graphic sexual content, a ban on teaching gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade, provisions for teachers using students' preferred pronouns, and much, much more. Uh, Caleb, let me start with you because you covered this debate, and if you could help us and. Uh, and when I say us, I literally mean us because I I need catching up too. 
get us caught up on the latest of this bill because we've seen these provisions in pieces in the House. Then the Senate did them all in one big bill. So now the House took up that Senate bill, but they changed some things. So, so, so what's the latest? What, which of these provisions uh, has been changed and, and maybe slightly different than what we've been following along with so far? Yeah, one of the representatives on Tuesday said it's starting to feel like deja vu. And uh, <laughs> I definitely feel that we've covered these uh, each individual portion of these bills from subcommittee to committee to vote. And now they did it all again on mostly the same same things with, as you mentioned, several differences. But um, yeah, the House kind of rolled that all that up into um, this package, which uh, the main items are part of the kind of parents' rights and content restrictions bill that Governor Kim Reynolds proposed earlier in the session. Um, but it looks quite a bit different than, than what she actually proposed. So one thing that stayed relatively constant is it keeps a ban on teaching gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through sixth grade. There's been some movement between third grade, sixth grade, um, but the last for the past couple of months, it's been pretty um, standard in that sixth grade cutoff. Um, and then there, it it changes um, from the Senate version the process for um, teachers or staff reporting on a student's gender identity. Um, so in the old language, it was basically if any school employee reasonably believed that the student was expressing a different gender identity. Um, then their sex assigned at birth, the school would have to notify the parents. Um, people were, uh, opponents were upset with that um, because, you know, they, as they mentioned, people who work in the lunch staff, people who drive the bus, they're not trained to um, kind of uh, respond to these things. And, and, you know, the way it was worded did make it seem like, you know, if, if, a, if a staff member thought that a student was wearing too feminine clothing, even, you know, they could, they could initiate this process. So, um, under the new process, uh, a student would need to specifically request accommodations to go by a different name or pronouns from an educator, and then the school would, that person would then notify the an administrator who would then notify the parents and need to get permission to make that accommodation. And then on the library book um, restrictions section, it adds hey, the hey, word- Hey, Caleb, I'm, I'm really yeah. sorry. Can I stop you real quick? So I want to clarify on that. So, so that that the pronoun thing, because that's the one that's moved around maybe the most of this. So, if students, uh, you said they have to, it, it it triggers when a student makes a formal request, right? When it was yes. So, if, so if the students are just walking around and their friends, their classmates know that they go by this pronoun and 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 they're calling, they're referring to you know they them or what whatever it is. That that's that goes untouched. That that is left alone. That, that's the Only, way I'm reading it and. The okay. way that it was explained, yeah, by okay. representative. It's only if the student comes to a staff member and says, "I would like to be, I would like you, my teacher, to refuse the pronoun they them," and then this process would be triggered. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then uh, in the library uh, section, it adds the word "graphic" to a section that would um, ban books that contain descriptions or depictions of a list of sex acts um, from school library. And that's um, that list is Iowa Code Section 702.17, if you want to read that at your own leisure. Um, but opponents uh, of the bill in different iterations have uh, said that this section, as it was originally worded without that graphic um, uh, word, would have banned some classic literature from bookshelves um, that contain maybe brief or veiled description of these acts. Um, so the addition of the word graphic seems to be intended to target only kind of some more detailed descriptions that uh, some of the lawmakers have pointed to. Dem Democrats still, you know, had concerns about that um, in debate. They said that that was a graphic description or depiction is subjective. Um, it's hard to, you know, 
it's going to leave it up to these um, library administrators and uh, sometimes, you know, school boards and parents to, to have to make that distinction. Um, and then. And, and, uh, and sorry, sorry, Caleb, I'm no, going to stop you on that one too. I want to hash this one out too. Yeah, of course. This one's been interesting to me. And, and, and so I'm, I'm going to do a little <clears throat> crowdsourcing here on the podcast too. So I want people, you know, my email, you know, my Twitter handle, uh, find me if, if you have any thoughts on this. Um, Cause this has been interesting in the, in the whole idea of, well, if we do this, it's going to end up in, in, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and, and uh, um, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are going to get uh, get banned. It seems like to me that the language has been adjusted in a way that it would not do that based on, <clears throat> and you mentioned the code section there, 702.17, if I remember right, which I've read too, which, which states very specifically depiction or description of sexual acts and then literally lists the, the specific sexual acts. Um, and then as you noted, the latest bill adds graphic to that, which kind of escalates even the level it would have to reach. It seems to me that that does take care of removing the vast majority of those <clears throat> kinds of books off of the endangered list, so to speak, you know. Um, now, I know that they're from having covered the story now for multiple years, there are still some books that have been flagged over these years that do include descriptions of sexual acts and probably still would fall under this. So I know that there are some that still would, but it does seem like, you know, the argument that this is going to take the, the, the literary classics off the shelves, I don't think holds water anymore, but I hope if somebody's listening to this and says is yelling at their car stereo right now or their iPhone saying, Hey Murphy, you idiot. Yes, it would. Uh, please <laughs> reach out to me and, and uh, explain that to me because because I, I, I want to hear that <clears throat> argument and, and example. But it seems to me, and you tell me if, I, if you read it differently, Caleb, it seems to me that this language would carve out and, and, and avoid those kinds of books, that, that it would have to have something, again, re read, read that code section for yourself, 702.17. Uh, it, it, it is very uh, specific language about very specific sexual acts that I think most of those books do not contain. Yeah, I think I would agree with you on on a good majority of the books that have been brought up, um, the classic books that, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is brought up. Um, Republicans have said, you know, that even the original language would not have banned this. Um, uh, and, you know, so so. I, Yes, the 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 list is specific, and and I guess it just um I I think there is some level before graphic was added. There probably is some level of subjectivity of you know what counts as a description of this sex act, right? If it's is it reference or metaphor or whatever, like would that count? So yeah, I I I think that a good chunk of you know classic books that people are concerned about, I would be by my reading seems like they wouldn't actually be taken out. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it would be interesting to see kind of how implementation uh, plays out. But uh, to, to round it out, um, the very last things are they they tacked on um, eight or nine other bills that were not in the original language that the House um, had already passed again, um, but they wanted the Senate to pass. Uh, the Senate had, had not taken these bills up. Um, they said, you know, if we're going to pass this version of the bill that you want, you're going to pass these bills that we want to pass. Um, and one of those, kind of the most interesting one, uh, or the most uh, uh, controversial one, was changing the Board of Educational Examiners, um, which currently includes mostly school uh, teachers and administrators. There are, I think, two members of the public on that board. 
um, to instead have five members, uh, five parents, uh, and five teachers and one school administrator. Um, and, uh, you know, the Republican, uh, explanation for this or support for this was it gives parents in the state more, um, uh, say in how teachers are licensed and what kind of the criteria for licensing teachers are. Opponents, Democrats, uh, argued, you know, parents might not or don't have the professional experience and understanding of what the, you know, what should go into that process. So that was a big argument. Um, and there's some transparency measures that didn't change much. And then we're getting a little long-winded here. So uh, you can go read my story for that. <laughs> well, then that's my fault. No, and and, and, and I, I appreciate you highlighting that Board of Ex- Educational Examiner piece because that's one that I know I've, I've been watching uh, for a um, goes back to the the Moms for Liberty event that Governor Reynolds spoke at way back when. Um, that was one of the things from that night that um, I, I can't remember uh, what which one of the it was. Uh, I uh, you know I, I won't say names because I can't remember for sure. But one of the House Republicans mentioned that um, uh, that, that that's something that they wanted to do was get more parents on that uh, board. And again, this you know I, I understand the point they're making and, and then the counter. Caleb, as you noted, this is this look. This is the board that licenses and and determines punishments for you know educators in the state, and, and that's why that and other state boards are typically populated by people with professional expertise and, and experience. Uh, and so um, it, it's pretty easy to understand the the hesitation uh, of folks to uh, who are um, you know, express concerns about <clears throat> populating that with a. Um, <clears throat> borderline majority of uh, parents on that. So <clears throat> that'll be interesting to see whether that stays in the bill as it moves forward. Because obviously now the next step in, is it, got, it has to go back to the Senate. As you noted, a lot of that wasn't in the Senate when they passed it. And all I can think is if you say those things, Caleb, is we're going to be up there until June. That's the concern, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Well, uh, obviously, uh, 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 well, no, before we move on, I wanted to... Um, uh, keep talking about this. I'm sorry. I, I, I almost got ahead of myself here. Um, it's a big bill, uh, but a big topic and a, a lot of different angles to tackle this. Um, so as I said, only Republicans voted for this bill in the House, but not all Republicans did. Uh, Jared, one of the Republican no votes came from your neck of the woods. What did Representative Megan Jones have to say about the bill? Yeah, so she's um, talked about this before that um, she basically has said she prefers people uh, to be making decisions and for these kinds of matters to be handled on the local level with school boards and librarians and kids and their families. Um, and when the, you know, the previous rounds of this uh, legislation were going around uh, in March, uh, Megan Jones told me then, um, she said, I just don't think the legislature needed to engage here. Um, and that wasn't entirely uh, dissimilar from the argument she made when she was voting against the um, trans-affirming care uh, ban for minors. That basically, she had a very similar line of argument for um, voting against that um, Republican-led bill uh, as well. So that's kind of arisen as the um, defense uh, for her of, of votes on these particular issues. Yeah, yeah, that's, <clears throat> pardon me, that's, um, and it's interesting because that's an argument that we've heard made um, um, is, and especially in the past, that's kind of been a, you know, it's the whole local control thing, right? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and there are a few Republicans who have made, uh, as you noted, uh, um, those arguments, but uh, obviously it's <laughs> become less a, a, a thing as, as more and more of these types of bills uh, that um, um, affect um, 
local government entities um, have been moving in the, this year and in, in, in recent years. Um, Jared, you also covered an event uh, in Sioux City, uh, I believe in Sioux City, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, where residents gathered to discuss this bill. Uh, and as I understand it, this was a gathering of people who are not super big fans of the bill. Is that uh, a fair summary? Uh, you are correct. Uh, on, uh, on Saturday, uh, there were several dozen people from the uh, Sioux City area who met at the public museum to talk specifically about these issues with books. Um, the organizers of the event uh, played uh, band book bingo. Um, so each individual bingo square was a different book that's been you know challenged over time. Uh, they also had a take a book, leave a book uh, band book swap uh, where you could pick up or drop off anything from more recently uh, challenged titles like uh, All Boys Aren't Blue or uh, you know some of the classics from the past that have been challenged a lot like To Kill a Mockingbird or 1984. Um, The first uh, speaker of the event was a woman named um, Liz Mkhitaryan, um, and she is the Florida-based founder of the group uh, Stop Moms for Liberty, uh, which touts uh, a thousand members in Iowa, she said. Um, And basically what she talked about in particular is that these legislative attempts to limit who can see what books are part of a larger effort to sort of delegitimize and gut the public education system from a number of different angles. That was really the kind of focus of her speech to the um, folks who met uh, last Saturday at the event here in Sioux City. Uh, all right. Um, and, and speaking of people who are not super big fans of the bill, uh, Todd, you wrote about it uh, this week. Uh, for, for those of you, or for those uh, listeners who missed Todd's column and, and shame on them, uh, Todd, <laughs> what, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I focused on some provisions in the bill that I thought were uh I mean, there's a lot of lousy stuff in this bill, but I focused on some provisions that I struck me as sort of silencing students. Uh, as as Caleb talked about, you've got the provision where you can't, you know, seek a, a, a gender support plan, you know, like like Linmar has on on the books, uh, without having your your parents notified. And and I and I think you know the practical effect of that is that. You know, regardless of what the letter of the bill says, I think kids, you know, who otherwise might have sought out a trusted adult at school to confide in are just going to kind of keep quiet. And so I, I think that's I think that's going to lead to problems. I mean, these kids are already marginalized and face risks. And I think this is going to be harmful. Uh, second, there's a portion of the bill where uh, uh, it, it expressly prohibits students from serving on committees that are are formed to weigh complaints about books in the library that you know people want them removed so they convene a committee to talk about that and the bill prohibits students from serving on that even though of course they're going to be the ones that are most affected by removing materials from the library and also it requires uh, parental written parental permission for any student to participate in a survey which I think they're taking aim at the Iowa Youth Survey, which comes out every few years, asks kids about a wide range of uh, topics, you know, related to their experiences in their lives, suicide, bullying, uh, substance abuse. And, you know, that data is used to, to craft policies to, you know, address some of those problems. But if every, if, you know, 
there'll be parents who don't want their kids to participate. Then there'll be parents like a lot of us that are, you know, just sort of muddling through the day and missed the email or didn't didn't realize we had to give permission. And so that could really hobble that study. And I mean, I there are a couple other provisions that struck me as pretty ironic also. Uh, we talked about the, the I just talked about the committees to to look into removing uh, removing books where this bill requires that transgender kids be forcibly outed to their parents. But if you file a complaint and want a book removed, your name will be kept confidential. So it's uh, it's sort of an interesting. Yeah, interesting that one, man. I mean, just as a journalist in general, anything that. Uh, takes away a, a level of transparency, uh, makes my skin crawl. But especially given the context of this whole discussion, Todd, I think that's a fair one to wave a really big red flag at. Yeah, and the bill also proclaims the you know the fundamental constitutional right of parents to make decisions for their children, but then seeks to carve out a little niche, except for the for the for the ban on gender affirming care that the legislature just passed. So parents' rights for some, but but not all. And I think basically, as I said, the practical effects of this, regardless of what the, the bill says, you're going to see, you know, transgender kids are going to be more isolated. Uh, teachers are going to be afraid to basically teach anything about LGBTQ, whether it be K through six or, or you know, beyond. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be libraries, regardless of graphic sex definitions, are going to be wary of anything that might even come close. And, you know, of course, you're talking about removing books that, you know, there's a paragraph in it with, with graphic sex and it's 400 pages. I mean, that, that's under our obscenity law in Iowa, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't pass muster. But uh, it, it's just there's going to be a chilling effect on schools. They're, they're going to want to be careful. And I think that's the real objective of this legislation is to basically, uh, you know, make schools frightened of the wrath of state government. And I, I think yeah. I think this bill would accomplish that. Yeah. And look, and that's not a um, I mean, talk to anyone who works in a school that that that's a re- that's a real thing, whether you think it's a good thing or not, that that's that's sub- that's subjective. But um, um, I would encourage people who heard what Todd just said to not just hand wave at that if you disagree with them, because uh, talk to anyone who works in a school district. And that's a very real effect that they, 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 they start, especially administrators, but but um, staff, too, will start walking on eggshells when stuff like this starts coming down uh, the pipeline from above. And, and, and uh, uh, to Todd's point, it, it's not even about the exact letter of the law it's 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 in, it's viewed and interpreted more broadly and and i i think todd raises an absolutely um uh, fair point there the other thing i should to, to circle back on uh, my discussion with caleb earlier and, and something that todd just touched on there about the the, the graphic uh, sexual content for books um rule while it may have narrowed the scope of that of its impact um again from covering this issue the last few years the books that we know that it still would impact um are largely books uh either by lgbtq authors and or um have have themes that are designed are are written to resonate with lgbtq um readers young people Uh, those those books that have that do have to todd's example you know maybe one passage in there um, that would fit under this law. That that's typically the kinds of books they are. So I think that that merits noting here too. 
Well, and Skylar Wheeler, you know, read the, is it 702.17? Was that the mm-hmm. code? Yeah. He basically read that whole thing on the floor, which, you know, it, it goes into, you know, a long list of, of sex acts. But, right. you know, to ban a book, it wouldn't have to have all of those. I mean, it would no, only right, it right. would only have to have one. Right. And yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know, within the context of a, of a broader work, I think that's just, it's, it's wrongheaded. But I think you're right there. It's not just about graphic sex. It's about targeting authors who express a worldview that Republicans don't agree with and, and, and talk about experiences that will make kids uncomfortable, like racism and rape and other, and other subjects. So, I, I mean, I, they're trying to protect them, I guess, but they're also shutting them off from the, from the actual world as we, as we know it and that they're soon going to be going off into. You know, I, I had this crazy thought one day as I was thinking about all this. So, um, so it's either one of those things where, yeah, duh, it's too obvious for, um, state legislators to figure out forgive me for being a little glib there or it's because they generally don't want to come to an agreement on this but if if this is a genuine concern why not make it so these books just have to be labeled as such but they can stay in the schools and and maybe you have to um you know request from the librarian to to check it out rather than it's not just sitting there on the shelf um, but you have a you have a list somewhere that says we also have these materials, and so so for the people who don't want them around, you know they're not just sitting out on the shelves. Their kids wouldn't see it and be able to pick it up. But for the kids who genuinely want to read it, it's still available to them. They can get to it. I mean that that seemed to me like such a simple middle ground. What am I missing there? Well, I I don't think they want to occupy a middle ground. I think they. What I want to, I mean, they've spent the last year during the election campaign talking about how, you know, bad public schools are and drag shows and pronoun lessons and all of that stuff. And, and now they're, you know, going, going after it. And I think, you know, that's what they're, they believe that's what their base of support wants. And, and so, uh, I, I don't think they want to compromise. Something um, when I was putting together my story from uh, last Saturday about the book event um, to Todd's point too, actually, I was looking up, you know, the past couple years of data that the American Library Association has for most challenge books. And they had a word cloud, you know, for like themes and topics in terms of most commonly challenged for different themes and topics. And, you know, the one of the biggest word clouds was like LGBTQIA, um, and, and other like sexual uh, content. But one of the bigger ones that didn't have anything to do with sex for the 2021 word cloud that I was looking at was the word woke. And obviously huh. at this point, that's a word that gets used in a million different ways. And if you're trying to legislate off of that, that's impossible because you can't even get people to agree on a definition of that. So including cable news guests, right? I think, I think think the definition has become anything that Republicans don't like is woke. I mean, pretty soon we'll be talking, they'll be saying higher taxes are woke. (laughs) I mean, you can just, you can slap that label on on anything. That's the new one this week. Bud Light is, is woke. Right? Yeah, that- Kid Kid Rock took some out with his uh, assault rifle there, oh, and you. you know he bought the beer, so I don't think Anheuser Busch cared. But which is which is one more Bud Light than I've bought in the last twenty years. Yeah, I, I've been boycotting Anheuser Busch for for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> I, so I'll just I guess not, I'll just continue. 
I, I'm not not drinking Bud Light because it's woke. I'm not drinking it because it's terrible. One question Fierce I had not. was that there uh, goes our one sponsorship uh, availability for the <laughs> podcast. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Sarah. Go ahead. One question I had about that is. I saw somebody else in another state with a, this similar bill had asked, well, you know, would teachers be able to mention that, for example, like Martha Washington is George Washington's wife? You know, does that fall under uh, sexual orientation because they're a heterosexual couple? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's 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 one of the arguments you hear a lot is, you know, in the teaching of sexual orientation um, that I think people uh, who are working on these bills sometimes forget that includes heterosexuality too. So uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I mean that that's an argument um, somebody made early in a, in a subcommittee on one of these bills. Like if a teacher says, all right, boys and girls, we're going to go get lunch or whatever saying boys identity. and girls is gender identity. Right. I mean, and I don't, yeah. Depending on how I, I think the the Republicans have argued that you know that 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 type yeah that well, that level I, of reference is not count, but how, how do you how do you differentiate? There? Yeah, and, and I mean during the Senate debate on one of these bills, and and I'm I'm trying to remember which one it was now, but I have the phrase stuck in my head because he said it a couple of times. The the Republican senator who was defending this stuff said, "I think we know what we're talking about here." Well, <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, you you can say that, but we're talking about. <laughs> A state law here, state code that's going to be interpreted in a legal sense here. I mean that that's you can't legislate your intent. You legislate what goes into the books, you know. So and, I mean, I, go ahead, Jay. And of course, and of course, with books and art in general, art is by nature subjective. So you can't ever fully know what it is you're talking about with something that is inherently subjective. And the perfect example of that is the Spice Girls. <laughs> All right. That is, yeah, exactly. (laughs) How many millions of albums did they sell? I love the Spice Girls. There goes another spot. There goes a musical guest. There goes a musical uh, outro. Man, I'm just burning all kinds of bridges. We better move on. Let's talk about something much more exciting. Taxes. Um, If you are a property owner in Iowa, you probably already know this, but assessments have been going out recently. And if you received your assessment and didn't, previously know why Republicans have been talking about property tax reform all session. You do now. Um, Speaking of property taxes, and this is a little tangent, but I saw this and wanted to have Sarah talk about this. This is great. Um, If you remember way back early in the session, uh, the state passed a fix to, well, so to go back further, there was an error made in the calculation of rollback rates that threw local government budgets into a flux right as they were being put together. And so state legislators um, a- approved a bill that, that that fixed, and I'm putting air quotes around fixed because local governments didn't necessarily agree that, that, uh, with the fix. Um, so anyways, uh, so that all happened back in the session. And Sarah, I saw this this week. The city of Bettendorf re- recently made a little explainer video for their residents um, about that property tax rollback fix. Um, and it took a little swipe at the Iowa legislature. T- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so they made this, uh, they've been, so the city of Bettendorf has been trying to up their community engagement and communications um, here in the past year. And uh, so they put out this video. Um, it, was, it was a little cheesy. It was like the final four matchup of all the different budgets that they were um, that they were considering. And so there was like the, the wish list, the Cinderella story budget with all of their wish list items. And then that one got sidelined early. And then, you know, they had this budget that, uh, had lots of 
growth um, and taxable value, funded some capital improvement projects that they wanted. But um, they said because of uh, some bad officiating late in the game, it had to be benched. Um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it was something like a, ba- a, a call from the state uh, yeah. limited a, a taxable taxable value growth and this and this budget had to be benched so so then they uh went with uh, a budget that that uh was kept the property property taxes low but still um cut out expenditures that they had been planning on so um so that was kind of a, a humorous uh take on how they decided on their budget um they one of their aldermen is he's also a writer and actor for a local comedy troupe. So he was like an announcer for the March Madness. It was I was actually impressed. Like it was it was I've never laughed out loud at a government budget explainer video, but I, I did on that one. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. So so the so the bill was a bad call by the refs, and because of that bad call bad bill the that budget had to sit on the bench with three fouls or something like it, it's yeah. there. <laughs> that was pretty good um but all yeah right, so, if i could just add though just yeah, in please. general and i'm sure cities all over the place are certifying their budgets right now so um a lot of localities are looking at expenditures that they can cut out and that means fewer like job new hires or um uh, contracts with nonprofits in the case of Scott County um, as the result of this less revenue that they're getting. At least that's what, you know, they say. So, yeah. Um, here in uh, Sioux City last night, uh, the Sioux City assessor called a uh, meeting as like an explainer for the property uh, evaluation increases. And there was a beautiful moment. Uh, one of our other reporters, Caitlin, wrote about this. There was a beautiful moment where the city assessor said at one point, if you guys want to argue about this, and then someone cut him off and yelled, yes. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, and we're going to pin this uh, discussion for the next podcast because um, as relevant as it is, um, we think there's a bill coming uh, next week. Uh, so so we'll have a little bit more substantial uh, to talk about. But obviously there's going to be it, this was already something that uh, was in the ether, and now with these assessments going out, I'm sure legislators are only catching even more heat from people back home, and, and uh, you expect something to get done uh, this year. Now, now that so far, the House and Senate have been kind of light years apart on their two proposals, so that's why I say there's a bill coming this week. That It'll be interesting to see what that looks like and how agreed to it is between two chambers. Um, all right. Now, finally, before we go this week, uh, I want to give a real quick moment here uh, for a sort of uh, points of personal privilege uh, for those of us who uh, cover the legislature on last weekend's NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament Final Four games uh, featuring Caitlin Clark and the Iowa Hawkeyes. I know this is a politics podcast, but that team and that run transcended beats and There was so much to talk about from that. So what the heck? Everybody else is talking about it. I want to give everybody an opportunity here to chime in and and give their their hot take, their first take moments on this. So the the championship game officiating, the post-game trash talking, First First Lady Jill Biden's suggestion that the Hawkeyes be invited to the White House too. This is it. This is your moment. Anyone want to? Want to take it? Take a crack here. Well, I, I was saying this right after the it happened in the the post game. Like 
if you're complaining about somebody celebrating after they won a national championship, you're a sad sack mope. Like that's all it comes down to. <laughs> like, and like, honestly, the LSU women, if I had just won a national championship, I would have kept yelling at everyone on the Iowa team. I, they would have had to like escort me away in handcuffs, like how much I would be yelling after I won a national championship. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I largely agree with that. I, I think um, I can't think of many other examples, but Iowa fans on Twitter, I I, I, I don't <laughs> want to get in too much hot water, but I, I disagree with them quite often. So, <laughs> I, You know, I, I thought the worst part about the officiating, I don't think Iowa lost because of it. I think right. LSU clearly deserved to win the title. I just, it sort of changed what could have been, a, you know, a more entertaining, fast-paced, uh, compelling game and sort of sucked the wind out of it and and, you know, I think that's bad for the teams, I mean, especially seniors that, you know, had to ride the bench after ticky-tack fouls and, and you know, the, the audience out there, the 9.9 million people who tuned in to watch what should have been a better game. I think that's just sad. And NCAA needs to do something about that. Uh, but I think the people I, I feel sorry for, like the, the White House uh event Comms people and, and chefs <laughs> and people because i I'm, I'm hearing this is just a rumor i think jill biden has invited all 64 teams to the white house just to be entirely fair oh, no. they're all going to get participation ribbon it's going to be it's going to be, oh, no. it's going to be fantastic it's going to be a big crowd but but I, I, yeah <laughs> uh i i um I, i'm i'm with uh, largely jared and caleb uh, on the on the post game shenanigans too and and look i i it would be hypocritical of me to feel otherwise because some of my favorite uh memories from 90s nba basketball are are michael jordan doing the matumbo finger wag after dunking on him and 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 uh uh sean kemp it, it's yep. hard to describe if, if you're familiar with it you know it and i apologize to those of you who don't but there's a famous dunk where sean kemp dunked on this guy the guy fell over from the force of the dunk and then sean kemp did this two-handed point at him <laughs> from a squat before running back down the court just wildly disrespectful but god help me i love it um and then the other one that jumps into my mind is Shaq shoving Chris Dudley to the ground after dunking on him. So, I mean, I love those moments. So it'd be pretty hypocritical for me to come down too hard on the, uh, uh, a little John well, Cena. Yeah, and, and the, and the, the trash, the trash talking is just part of the game. Caitlin right. Clark does it. I, I, mean, I think, it, I mean, the way, it, the way it went after the game, it just, you know, it just, it sort that of, was rubbed, the, it rubbed a little salt in the wound. I mean, you know, people were disappointed and I think that's why that, Lauren got mad, but yeah, yeah I mean, I even, even Clark that. said that it didn't bother her. Right. I mean, and if it doesn't bother her, then I don't. I, right. The rest right. of us, it, does, it doesn't really matter that much. I don't. <laughs> exactly. I would, and and that's that's exactly what I was just going to say, Todd. I think if I if I would be allowed to give a little bit of uh, room to the folks who were upset about this, I think that is why it, it the, just kind of the way she stalked her to the sideline, <laughs> at, at, you know, at, to to do this as the the game's over, the confetti's starting to fall. Um, and, and she's like literally stalking and trying to cross Caitlin paths, Caitlin Clark's path. I think it was just because of that. Now I, I, if that doesn't change it for me overall, you know, no, I, I, I don't, it, I, I don't think she, why. I mean, like I say, I think people's emotions were raw and when yeah, they saw exactly. that, they, when they saw that, but it's in the big yeah. scheme of things, there's, there's nothing wrong with being, I mean, she was celebrating and, yeah. you know, 
in her way, and that's that's fine. So I have two things. I wonder what uh, Kim Mulkey's property assessment is going to be on the court, uh, since she's <laughs> living out there for most of the game. If that's going to well go done. up a lot. Um, well done. And then uh, two, um, yeah, I agree with that. Everybody said if Caitlin Clark's not bothered by uh, by it, then I'm not. Um, yeah. And then just as yeah. somebody who played a lot of women's sports in high school and like watched women's collegiate women's basketball, it's really exciting to see so many people excited about women's basketball. I remember not even just a few years ago, people being like, well, who asked for this? Who asked for the ESPN highlight zone to be about women playing basketball or other sports? And, and, you know, nobody, (laughs) nobody cares. It's not fun to watch. You know, like this is, this is exciting. It's always been exciting, but this is especially exciting. (laughs) Well, you know when people are really ticked off about something that women's basketball has has come a long way because I mean people are always ticked off about something in the men's game, but there you, know, you go. That's a good point. You know, it's That's a good uh, way to look at it. Yeah, it's. I mean, if 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 it's in angry Twitter, then it's it's then it's arrived. Well, and the, and the game has gotten to the. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you knew the the top four seeds were going to go to the final four, and they beat mm-hmm. the heck out of everybody else. And now you got parity. You got number one seeds losing. You've got you know unexpected results, close games. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's ascending. There's no, no doubt about it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of uh, On Iowa Sports and Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where I talk about sports sometimes, too. Uh, And every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. Lastly, don't forget that everyone you heard here today, their work can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm looking at that list. Maybe I should uh, organize that list geographically. As it, it reads, it kind of bounces all over the map right now, east to west and back and forth. Maybe a project for down the road. Dead Larry will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.